what I love about not just writing down invisible norms, creating that clarity on a team is that it's a head fake in many ways, right? Because once you have a norm written in front of you, as a team, you can start to ask why and does this actually work for us? And we just, we didn't do that as much with the invisible norms that we had in the office. And so it's a great opportunity to say, how are we working together? And is this, this is actually working for all of us. Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Leveling Up is made possible by Marlo. Marlo enables you to support your managers and emerging leaders with twice monthly sessions led by Marlo's expert management development coaches. Partnering with their coaches, Marlo members focus on the skills that matter most to them. Skills like communication, time management, people management, strategic awareness, and more. Support your managers and emerging leaders wherever they are in their journey with Marlo's one-to-one coaching and training. Head to getmarlo.com for more information. Today's episode is with leaders from Slack's Future Forum, and they've recently written a book called How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. Brian Elliott is executive leader of Future Forum. He spent three decades leading teams and building companies as a startup CEO, and as a product leader at Google and now at Slack, where he is senior VP. Brian started his career at Boston Consulting Group and earned an MBA from Harvard Business School. Helen Cup is a co-founder and senior director of Future Forum, and she has led many of Slack's largest cross-functional and growth initiatives and is the creator of many of Future Forum's playbooks, tapping Future Forum's research and networking along with her experience at Slack, Bain & Company, startups, and her MBA from Harvard Business School. I wanted to kick us off with a better understanding of Future Forum, what it is, how it became to be, and how the two of you ended up where you are within the organization. So the three of us, Brian, Sheila, who is a co-author and myself, we've all, you know, built and led teams of all different functions and sizes throughout our careers. And if there's anything we've, we've all learned, it's that competitive advantage comes down to people, how you attract, retain, and engage great people on your teams and in your organizations. And I think what happened very early on in our careers is that we We knew that there was something better, but it wasn't until the pandemic hit that we saw this opportunity to really reimagine and transform how we were all working together. And more importantly, through our work on Future Forum, where we combine data-driven insights with executive dialogue and their stories of best practices and things that are working in the field and not working, We saw this opportunity to really affect change across more organizations than just our own teams. It's been a fantastic opportunity on that front, I think, for all three of us as individuals as well as as an organization. And a lot of this comes from the sort of plasticity, elasticity, openness that we've been forced into as organizations and as people over the past couple of years that allows us to sort of question a lot of conventional wisdom about work, about its role in our lives, about the nine to five, five days a week in the office norms that are literally now a century old, and rethink how to make work better for people and for organizations. And I think for each of us individually, it's kind of a, it's a passion project as well as, as well as the work. And it's just been a, a blast being able to do it together as well. 
And so this is a consortium backed by Slack, of course, as well as Boston Consulting Group, Miller Knoll, and Management Leadership for Tomorrow. How did that partnership get set up for the entire organization? And you know, what was that commitment early on? Yeah, so the, the early stages of this even precede founding Future Forum. So Helen and I have both, and Sheila as well, have all been at Slack for a number of years, all of us actually about five years or more. And early on in, in my tenure here, Stuart Butterfield, who's Slack's CEO and co-founder, was talking to me and some other people about the fact that Slack's always had this fantastic research organization, but it gets sort of buried inside, inside of the organization, right? It's like a lot of company research that goes to feed your product roadmap, but it never sees the light of day publicly, but it was really insightful about people and teams. And Stuart started talking about this idea for a center for the future of work, having a, a think tank backed by Slack that would help you know, get that, the word out there. And when the pandemic struck, I went to Stuart and a few other folks, and importantly, Helen and Sheila, and said, hey, look, if we're ever going to do this, now is the time, because people are asking a lot of questions that are really hard and really insightful, and we should pull this together. But we didn't want to do it alone. So Slack has been a critical backer of this and, and supports us. And by the way, I also lead our internal Slack task force on, on future of work. But we wanted to get some other people who had different perspectives but like-minded about the opportunity. So Boston Consulting Group has been a fantastic partner in terms of thinking about what's happening on a global basis in terms of their reach. They're also doing some really interesting work these days on deskless workers, frontline people, not just office workers. Miller Knoll is a fantastic organization in the office furnishings and office space space. And they also have a great research organization that has really good insights into people and dynamics and how to make flow work and how to make it more inclusive. And then Management Leadership for Tomorrow is a nonprofit focused on advancing the careers of particularly Black and Hispanic Latinx managers and executives and their voice, their expertise, their knowledge on how to make not just diversity, but inclusion and equity and belonging work has been a really key aspect of our work as Future Forum. So the four of these organizations together creates a richer platform that also has more depth in terms of research expertise that we can bring to bear. Yeah, it wasn't just, I think early on, the three of us recognized that if you're going to talk about the future of work, you really needed to include all these different aspects of work. It wasn't just, you know, like the CIO thinking about the IT decision or the HR person thinking about the people policy. You had to pull that more holistic perspective and view together. And we we pull founding partners to do a bit of that, to, to actually build a more holistic perspective around future work. What role did the rest of the organization play? You know, and we're going to get into the book in a moment, but when it comes to guiding both the, the future forum or Slack's internal task force on the future of work. Does a lot of this data come from your existing employee base as well as your broader user base? It does in a number of ways. So the, the Future Forum Pulse, which is our big research instrument, is completely autonomous from Slack, mm-hmm. meaning it is 10,000 knowledge workers out there that use all kinds of tools in all kinds of situations around. And so we do that every quarter to make sure that we've got a pulse on what's happening, what's working, and for whom. Habits, practices, policies, you know, you name it. That actually informs the work that we do internally at Slack as well, as well as at Salesforce, as well as at other organizations that we work with. From a Slack perspective, we did a couple of things. When we found that this is actually a way to to have bigger success, 
In our own research as Future Forum, one of the things that we see is that, to Helen's point, this can't be just an HR-led type of effort. It actually, if you think about like what's required to make major changes in how people work, work, it's it's your people team, it's your communications team, it's your IT team, it's the workplace team, but it's also the operators and importantly, the managers that live it, breathe it day to day. So we pulled together a representative task force that had people that were from different functions that were also spread out around the globe that also importantly came from different demographics and backgrounds because they have different perspective on what's working, what's beneficial, what's not beneficial in the future of work. That group's job was to be, in a lot of cases, the test cases for what we were building and doing. There's a lot that we found works if you do experimentation, iteration, and find internal champions. At the same time, I was also working with our executive team on how we're going to move forward coming out of this. And that's an important notion. There's this thing that happened back in March of 2020 that we all remember, which is everybody got shoved into work from home situations in a lot of office environments. And it was this sort of sudden, unexpected thing that people quickly, you know, found ways to adapt to. And then, you know, we all worked from home and that was the only choice for a while and everybody had it pretty stable. What happened about a year later is firms started coming out of that and thinking about, okay, but what happens next? As offices reopen, you then got faced by, as an executive team by a couple of choices. Are we going back to 2019 and how things worked then? Because that feels comfortable sometimes as an executive. Or are we moving forward from today? Are we rethinking how do we think about the office insured space as a tool, not as the center of the universe for work? And that that executive conversation is really critical. And that was the center of a lot of this. And it was formed by the research and by that task force. But it was also really important to have that sort of input to an executive conversation, but also to have the open dialogue and the conversation in the executive suite about that. Yeah, I'll also add that internally, you know, Slack employees have also been really great, I think Brian mentioned, for being a testing ground for different experiments and ways in in enabling flexible work. So a really great example is, you know, we talk a lot about in our research how flexible time matters more than flexible location. Time matters more than place. And the grounding for that is that many of us are stuck in playing Tetris with our calendars, going from meeting to meeting to meeting. But we know this, even in the pre-pandemic times, that meetings, for the most part, are not very productive, and yet we rely on them a lot for work. So how do you actually redesign meeting culture and rethink this when it's such an ingrained habit? And so at Slack, a couple of things that we tested out were we call focus Fridays and and maker weeks as opportunities for people to clear some of those meetings, reevaluate whether or not they're necessary and really think through, you know, what do you need to meet? And if you do, are they there for what we call the four Ds, right? Discuss, debate, decide, or develop. And being able to test that internally, experiment with that program and share that more broadly, both with you know, executives that we work with, as well as across the Future Forum research, helps kind of bring some of the research to life, which I've loved. Have you tracked the effect of, for example, the Focus Fridays and the Maker Weeks? What has been your your metric for making sure that this is actually having the change that you're you're looking to have? At the end of the day, the best measure that you got for this is back to employee engagement. So we 
we actually run a monthly employee pulse survey. And, you know, it's got a couple of questions that are standard every month. They're the same things that we ask month on month on month, which is which is things like your employer net promoter score, right? Like, would you recommend Slack as a place to work to your friends? And but then we layer into that questions that are specific to the programs that we're rolling out at any point in time. So as we've been rolling out Focus Fridays and Maker Weeks and expanding that throughout the organization, we've used that as a way to measure whether or not it's actually having a positive impact, at least at a minimum from a perception perspective. So it's questions like, do you find it beneficial? But also, do you have time in your week to focus? And you know, do you feel like you're in too many meetings? And so what we've seen is Overall, we've seen great impact in terms of people finding the programs beneficial. In fact, over 85% of Slack employees find Focus Fridays beneficial. And when you dig underneath that, especially frontline managers find them to be hugely beneficial. And then what we did is we found that there are different answers, depending on the team that you're sitting in, about whether or not you're getting the time to focus and whether or not you were in too many meetings. Meaning some of it was you know, five days worth of meetings got compressed into four days and that's a little better because getting back time on my Friday is in uh, in big blocks is actually a benefit still, but it's not as good as you know actually reducing them. So we looked at the calendar data. The calendar data is a little messy and all over the place, but when we when we dig into it at a at a function and team level, what we find is there are some groups that were doing it better and some groups that weren't. And so we did two things. We actually shared that data and information back with the functional leaders of those teams so that they were aware of it, you could talk about it, you could work in it on, on it with their organizations. But importantly, we have a task force that went in and worked with those individual organizations also to lay out specific use cases and examples. And th- th- this it turns out is really important. I've seen we've seen this at work in other organizations too. The needs of a product design engineering team are different from the needs of a sales organization how you think about what you can do asynchronously versus what you want to do in person. Helen's you know, four categories, discuss, debate, decide, and develop are really important. But then how you think about how the rest of the work gets done asynchronously varies. And so we did a lot to support them with use cases and training, and we continue to do that. Well, what I've found historically, and I've been doing this now in different firms in different ways for a couple of decades, is the the once and you're done declaration of no meeting Fridays, as an example, doesn't work unless it's reinforced. It, it's a it, it's the sort of thing that slips sideways over time if you're not if you're you're not careful about it. And it's not just reinforcing, reminding people; it's giving them the, the examples that makes it work. I will maybe take this and say the big reason for why we wrote the book. Honestly, what you'll find in in how the future works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. You know, we're not talking about just the research. It's 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 built around being a lot more practical, giving execs and leaders, and how to, a more how to guide for how to approach flexible work. And part of it is through our work at Slack and with other companies, we're finding that this isn't just a you set a policy at the top, or you're hoping that you know you just enable flexible work and it, it happens. There's so much more that you need to do to support leaders, managers, individuals in making that transition, in understanding what are new use cases, new ways in which we can do something. What are the tools and templates that I can use to start these discussions with my teams about, you know, better operating norms or better meetings, or even, you know, how can we work more asynchronously, things like that. 
requires a change in behavior, requires a change in habits. And so a lot more support and guidance is necessary. You talk about the tactical ways to help managers execute on this. How do we do this better? A lot of that was missing long before the pandemic. Managers have often, and for a very long time, been under-supported when it comes to how to actually do their job more effectively. You know, what are the steps I'm supposed to take? And it looks like you gave them these playbooks to, to give it a try and, and see what works. The book outlines a number, and we could talk for hours. I'm curious, you know, if you had to choose two or three specific takeaways for managers in particular, what stands out the most for you? Wow, that's, I feel like that's a really hard question when you're talking to authors your, your who, baby. you know, all the steps are our baby. Pick your, um, pick your favorite part, Helen. I know, pick my favorite part. You know, honestly, in our back and forth before jumping on this conversation, I think you wrote something about how so much of this is common sense, right? Even in the pre-pandemic times, and yet it still feels really hard. And I think the one piece that is one of my favorites is about reskilling managers and redefining the role of a manager. And I would almost push us to say it's actually defining the role of a manager, right? I, I remember stepping into the management role the first time and you are great at your job. You, you know what to do. And it almost feels like, okay, now you can delegate that and tell people what to do. And, and in reality, being a great manager is not about just telling people what to do. It's sort of giving them a purpose. It's creating that clarity, inspiring them to come up with the best solutions and, and unlocking their potential. And that framework around what is the role of the manager, especially today, I think is something that I just, I've, I don't see well-defined anywhere. And when we created that framework within Slack, that really lit a light bulb for me. I was like, oh, wow, why why can't we tell more people these three things? Like these are the things to focus on. Building on that, I mean, within that framework, it's the ability to create clarity as a leader, right? To build trust, to unlock potential, all of which are really important. Creating clarity is that prioritization exercise that, you know, laddering up of the purpose of your team to the purpose of the organization that so many people need to be shown what it looks like in order to be effective. And it, it just does so much, you know, building trust. How do you actually build psychological safety? We could get into, but I would start with that create clarity side. Mary, I'll give you an, an, a slightly different answer too, which is not everyone wants to be a manager. It's not the world's biggest secret. And yet in so many organizations, what we do is we only have one way up. You only have one way to get promoted, which is you go from being an individual contributor to being a manager. And that's a mistake. And I, I wish I'd known this when I was a startup CEO, and I wish I had gravitated to this earlier, but I think building dual career tracks for people, allowing people who want to continue to build and develop their expertise as individual contributors to the organization is really important. So I've seen this and done this now, at, both at Google, where I had an engineering team that had you know, two ladders on it, it had an expert ladder, and, and we did the same thing here at Slack. And it's now not so uncommon in engineering where it was where, where it used to not be the case even 20 years ago. But now think about how you would apply that. We've done the same thing here at Slack with product managers. We've done it with designers. I actually think it's got the same applicability in almost any career. We need to allow people to say, look, do you want to grow your leadership capabilities in terms of expertise and contributions on that front, or do you want to grow it through managing and leading people? Because it's a different skill set that you have to learn and build. And if more of us thought through that, I think the world of work would be a better place. You said creating clarity, Brian, and it just reminded me of 
one of the things that I actually just love about where we're headed with the future of work and, and more flexible work. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm an introvert and I like things written down rather than like live in meetings. <laughs> but I think one of the realizations that we came to early on in our work is that when you have flexible work, especially when a team is working on, you know, different schedules and different locations, that coordination and collaboration work that a team is doing has to become a lot more intentional. And so a lot of the times the simplest first step is just documenting those invisible norms, actually yeah. making explicit what are those things that we used to take for granted, those underlying assumptions. And in some ways that's that's actually creating a lot more clarity by putting it down in words on paper. And one of the ways in which we we do this with you know, executives that we speak to and are on, on our own team is by using something that we call a team level agreement, which are basically a set of guidelines that establish expectations for how all members of the team work with each other. And what I love about not just writing down invisible norms, creating that clarity on a team is that it's a head fake in many ways, right? Because once you have a norm written in front of you, as a team, you can start to ask why, and does this actually work for us? And we just, we didn't do that as much with the invisible norms that we had in the office. And so it's a great opportunity to say, how are we working together? And is this, this is actually working for all of us. This also draws out the huge problem that happens with the transition to a more hybrid or remote work environment, which is this idea that we need to be managing people based on the hours they spend in the office. And I know the two of you have right. talked a lot about this in different conversations and, and of, of course throughout the book. How has the book approached managing for outcomes and how do you teach and train managers who are wanting to do their jobs really well, but again, the playbook they had before is really different than the one they need today. Where does managing for outcomes come up in the book? pretty consistently and kind of almost fundamentally in some ways. So the, the the historical way, unfortunately, that a lot of people managed was through inputs, right? It was through, were people at their desks? Did, you know, did Jane show up at 8 a.m. and leave at 8 p.m.? Jane must be great because she's putting in the hours and hustle culture type of things. Those are indicators that someone is present. That's not an indicator that they're, that they're working. We've, we, we, one of the things that we do as Future Farm is we actually host these series of executive working groups. We have small groups of executives that come together that are grappling with problems and challenges. And one of them said, every time an executive asks me, how do we, you know, now that people are working from home, how do we know they're working? You know, my, my response is, how do you know they were working when they, when they were in the office? And so this has sort of always been there, but it was sort of the easy way out, right, to measure inputs. And so what you've got to do is think about what are the outcomes that we're trying to drive? What are we trying to achieve? And in some functions that may sound and look easier than it is in others, right? If you're managing a customer service organization, you can look at the quality as well as speediness, as well as resolution time of, of responses to customers. You can look at their net promoter score, et cetera. There's ways to instrument that. It gets harder, but it doesn't take away the obligation as leadership to, to work with your management team and say, what are the outcomes that we're trying to drive? It's not just launching a new product. It's the fact that it's used by customers. Now, how are we going to measure that and how are we going to balance out measuring both the outcomes that come out of the, out of the effort as well as you know, our employee satisfaction in doing it? And so you, you sort of start at the top and you have to be able to articulate what outcomes you're looking for as an organization. But then you've got to work it down to the front line where you're giving frontline managers really specific, explicit examples 
about what that looks like, how to work the process of, for example, thinking through what the key results are that your team is trying to create on a quarterly basis, and then having a regular conversation and measuring that on a monthly basis, and how you pull that back into your one-on-one as a manager that you should be having with people on your team, where you're talking about what are we trying for this week? Are we on track? Why or why not? How can I help you move forward if you're not? And if we can do that, if we can think through how it starts off with top-level organization goals and how that ladders down in, in, through the rest of the organization, you, you really unlock you know, both a much more level playing field for individuals, but you also unlock much better performance for the organization. It is an investment, but if you think about it, even just from a purely like results of the company perspective, what a fantastic investment to make. I think that directly ties into that create clarity piece that we talked about in terms of being a manager. If you are able to be really, really clear about what are the outcomes you're driving towards at the very top and work that way down into what does that look like for the organization? What does that look like for my team? What does that look like for an individual? Then you get much better alignment as an organization. And and yes, it is an investment, but it is so core to what you know really unlocks team performance and what managers can focus on, which is clarifying, creating clarity about the job, about the outcome, about the role. And of course, so much research shows that this can prevent burnout when people know what they are supposed to be doing and they understand that oh, path. Absolutely. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the research you've seen on burnout within your your own data set? Well, so flexible work. And in many ways, what we saw early on in the pandemic is if you lifted and shifted everything from the office into virtual culture, there was this proliferation of meetings and people were actually working longer hours. But flexible work doesn't mean being on all the time 24-7, right? That, that definitely drives way more burnout. And one of the things that we often say is flexibility requires predictability. And that starts from clarifying you know, what, what is the outcome? Who's sort of the directly responsible individual, the DRI, who's responsible for, you know, this piece of work or this decision. And also pairing that with being clear about response times, by when do you need feedback and from who, and what are those paths for escalation? And so a lot of this goes back to that fundamental thesis of, with flexible work, you have to be a lot more intentional and explicit about, you know, these sort of how you operate as a team, but it is both one good practice and two creates more clarity and predictability so that you don't, you know, all of a sudden everyone's swarming on a, you know, a single project or, or expecting to be on 24 seven so they, they can respond to, you know, someone who's working early in the morning and sending things out as well as their colleague who may be more of a night owl and sending things out in the evening. And so I think it's really important that we pair flexibility with some boundaries and expectations around responsibilities and response times. And from a research perspective, that ends up being important for different groups in different ways. So one of the things that we find consistently is that the burnout levels for parents are higher than non-parents, which when you think about it is not hugely shocking and surprising. But if you've got a leader on a team who's got, you know, who's not a caregiver, who maybe doesn't have, you know, the same situation at home, I myself have grown adult kids almost at this point. It's kind of shocking. 
they can get find themselves in a situation where, look, in with all the best of intentions, I do this myself historically. I'll send out the email or the Slack that says, "Hey, I don't need you to pay attention to this till the morning, but I'm just getting it out there because I happen to be doing some stuff tonight." And the challenge is that note that you send out, even though you put all the you know caveats in front of it, hits somebody's inbox and they see it. And then they start thinking about it. And then their choice is, I'm either going to like have a night where I'm going to be thinking about this, or I'm going to try and find the time to deal with it now. And so I've learned the hard way through feedback. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Sheila. That that doesn't work. And so I'm a big fan of scheduled send. If it really can wait to the morning, it can be sent in the morning. And simple tools like scheduled send inside of Slack or email are really easy ways for me to still do it when I want to do it, when it's convenient for me, but not have it land on somebody on the team who then is going to get a you know, is going to get disrupted and interrupted. And especially the more you think about all the other demands on people's time in their lives and the thing, issues that they may be dealing with, don't do it. This draws attention to the comment that Helen made earlier around being more of an introvert and being able to see things in writing and be able to comment, which of course creates more of an inclusive work environment where everybody has a voice on an equal footing. This shift to remote work and a flexible work environment, whether that's, you know, time, you, you talked earlier about time and location, all of this creates the opportunity to redesign inclusivity and belonging within the workplace. And, and we've mentioned in previous discussions that it also creates an opportunity to, to recruit a more diverse team. As you've been doing your research, what have you seen has been the effect of a flexible work environment on diversity within today's work environment and hopefully the future? Sure, there's, there's a lot to this one. First of all, you know, there is that opportunity to recruit a more diverse team. We've seen this both at Slack as well as when we work with and talk with companies like Levi's or Nike. San Francisco itself does not have a, black, a large black knowledge work community, reasonably well known. If you wanted to recruit people from that community and you were telling them all they need to pack up and move to San Francisco, it's a bit challenging. So all of us have sat there and said, hey, look, there's just a geographic differential here that we need to be thinking about. And if we start thinking about broader geographies, then we can recruit a more diverse workforce. As you're thinking about that, then you got to pair it up with what happens when people start coming back into offices and how do you prevent yourselves from getting into proximity bias issues? Meaning we're seeing this in the research and in the results. People that are coming back into the office more often are white, they are male, they are non-caregivers, they are executives in, in certain instances. And that creates the risk that if I look around the office and start rewarding people on the basis of who's showing up, I'm actually doing damage to my, to my diversity work. There's another really interesting thing from a race and ethnicity perspective that we saw very early on in the research, and it's only grown since, which is Dial yourself back to when we first all got pushed out into working from home. Sense of belonging, which is one of the attributes we measure in the pulse, dropped on average for knowledge workers globally. But when we dug into it, it actually dropped for white knowledge workers. It rose for Black and Hispanic Latinx knowledge workers in the United States. And when we dug into this, we, we grabbed a group of academics and experts, our friends at Management Leadership for Tomorrow. And Brian Lowry from Stanford, who's a professor, was the first person to say this. The reason why sense of belonging rose was because of the costs of code switching and microaggressions at work. Brian's language around this was, even as a black professor at Stanford, I find you know that five days a week, nine to five is taxing because I'm always watching how I talk, how I behave, how I show up. Even a few days working from home, even the ability to dial in and dial out gives me a break and allows me to recharge my batteries. 
what we see now consistently, you know, to your sense is for those groups, their desire to come into the office five days a week is a lot lower than it is for their white colleagues. And so it's really important to think about as you're thinking about back to, you know, outcomes are more important than attendance, but also think about who you're rewarding and what basis on which you're rewarding people as, as offices reopen. It's a very similar story, even if you look beyond you know, racial groups and all that. I talked about being an introvert and something that we we talk about on the Future Forum is the curb cut effect, right? Which is when you enable something that seems to benefit one subgroup, it's actually something that benefits everyone, whether you intended it or not in the, in the beginning. And one of the things that, you know, I personally have felt is that with more virtual work, with more flexible work, being an introvert it's hard to get in, in, you know, meeting discussions or when you're live, you know, brainstorming around a room. It's actually much easier to have a voice in the room when you have tools that enable it, like the raise hand function on Zoom or being able to just add a comment in chat as a way to, to spark discussion and be able to, in some ways, raise your hand and add to whatever's being said. It's, it's much easier to do that, more, much more natural for introverts than it is to try to jump into a middle of a conversation and interrupt someone. And so it's, it's really that we're finding that in many ways, flexible work, virtual tools are giving a much more diverse and broad range of ways in which people can engage with work and with each other. And that opens up their ability to be part of the the conversation, build sort of more connection and belonging with with their coworkers. Thank you for for walking us through this. There's so many tactical, actionable steps that our listeners can apply in their own organizations. We're about out of time here. Oh, go ahead, Brent. I was was going to say real real quick, that, that was a big part of what we did with the book and very intentionally is. There's a lot of research that backs this up. There's a lot of case studies that are in it, but we also wanted to make it very approachable and tactical. So each of the seven steps and seven steps can sound like a lot, but it's really not when you get into it because you can pick a couple of these and start with them. And each of them comes along with a tool, you know, at the back of the book, there's an appendix that's actually got content and all the rest of it. And you can actually even go to futureform.com and download that toolkit and use it yourself. So we want to make sure that it's combining both the insights coming from the research, but also some really practical, tactical things that you can do with a team. You don't have to wait until your entire organization does this. And we will absolutely link to those playbooks in the futureform.com section. So we'll make sure those links are here. As we wrap up, we'll definitely be sharing all of your links so that our listeners can, can go buy the book, can listen to it on Audible, of course. I ask all of our guests the same question because I find that the answers vary so much and they, they help our listeners expand their own toolkits. But for each of you, I'm curious, you know, what are the, the resources that you've been leaning on to stay sharp, whether it's around future of work or potentially another part of your very expansive careers, you know, in terms of what you're focusing on day to day, where do you lean for help? or for guidance? In terms of resources, it's really funny, actually. I I find that to just generally stay sharp or to come up with new ideas, I find that talking to people outside of my field, outside of both the work collaboration technology field, as well as future of work field, tends to be really valuable. Um, It's one of the things that we talk a lot about, you know, how do you increase weak ties and getting new ideas. And so as an introvert in particular, 
it's it's sort of a personal, you know, OKR to continue to have conversations with people, you know, outside of the focus areas in which I work. And that often pulls in new ideas. And then I'll also add for something very different to continue to be better as a manager and leader. Believe it or not, I think that being a parent teaches me a whole lot about being a great manager. And so one of my favorite parenting podcasts is Dr. Becky Good Inside. And I apply that a lot to my parenting, to my relationships. And in many ways, it helps me a lot in terms of sharpening my skills as a manager and leader. I have a one-year-old, a so does that does that apply? <laughs> Should I be looking for Dr. Dr. Insights podcast or is it too soon? I it does, it absolutely does imply uh, apply. And it's funny how how often it applies more to my relationship with my spouse more than anything. But I have a two and a half year old and a seven month old. So wow. yes. Congratulations. Helen, by the way, gave birth to to Sam, her daughter. What the, a week, two weeks after we turned in the manuscript for the book. Yeah, two weeks after we turned in the manuscript, my daughter was born. Yep. There's, no there's an entire deal. book. There's an entire book in the writing of this book between the three of us. That, that's spectacular. For for me, I'm a voracious reader. I, I I read and consume a lot. I do that in in snippets and in bits, but also in in books. My, my whole like from a career perspective, I, I have what might be best described as hopscotch or you know monkey bar climbing, but. I've always been much more focused on like, am I learning something in this job? Is it is it tapping into something that I already know that I can use? But also, am I you know stretching myself? Am I having to learn something new, whether that's subject matter or whether that's an industry or a field? So I want, I always, always want to be able to put myself in a situation where it's a bit of a stretch, but then I can fall back on some of what I know already to do it. And that's been really important. The other echoes a bit of, of where I think Helen was going also, which is in, in the job that we've got now, what I find invaluable is talking with organizations in very different situations and finding out what's common and what's different and then helping to sort of draw some of those patterns. So that's why in the book, we, we profile you know, people that are in financial services, people that are in biotech, people that are in consumer goods and retail. So all of these companies, not just tech companies that are grappling with very different challenges, but there's some underlying fundamentals. And every week that goes by is another one of those conversations where somebody that I've not talked to before gives me an idea that I'm like, gosh, that's a great idea. We've got to find a way to get that out in the public eye. And so at the end of the day, to some degree, I guess that's also, you know, we're, part of our job is to give back to everybody by sharing some of what we hear and what we learn. Well, thank you both. This has been a really powerful conversation. And I know our listeners are going to walk away with plenty of tactical tips and specifics that they can apply in their day-to-day. Congratulations on the book. It's truly amazing. We will be linking to that in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to make sure our listeners hear before you wrap up? The uh, for, I think for us, this is a continued unfolding journey, I think for everybody. Anyone who thinks they've got the future of work figured out is maybe a little bit self-delusional, including us. We don't. And so find ways to experiment, find ways to iterate. And especially if you're a leader, admit you don't have all the answers. And man, is that a hard learning. It's been a journey for me personally. As I've been a CEO, I've led teams. You've got to do two things at the same time. You've got to be willing to say, here's the vision. Here's the mission. We can accomplish great things together and say, but I don't have all the answers. I need your help getting there. We need to get navigate this together. And if you can do that, we see that, you know, within our own work, you can unlock so much potential in your team. 
but it, it's often hard for people who've been trained in, in the more standard command and control to do that. The only thing I would add to that is, like Brian said, we're all learning and we love hearing, you know, stories, what's, what's worked and what hasn't for different leaders and organizations. And so if you have a great story, reach out to us. You can find us on futureforum.com. And we'd love to hear, you know, some of those practices that you're putting into place that really works for you. Well, thank you so much. So Brian Elliott, Helen Cup, and of course, Sheila Subramanian is not here today, but the three of you wrote How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. Thank you for taking the time to spend with me today. Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes.